This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Well, thank you all for having me. Um, I guess it was about 30 years ago. I was in probably my Superman pajamas when, uh, is that too much detail? <laughs> when um, I think my beloved Georgetown Hoyas fell to this esteemed institution. <laughs> tragedy only overcome by time so um, I should just ruin this speech for you and get my revenge uh, but, uh, it's great to be here at Villanova I, I appreciate um, Professor Lucky uh, reaching out to me here uh, just a few days ago uh, really not that long ago to come and give this talk so I'm really pleased that so many of you have turned out to hear about Malcolm X's Black History Month uh, I'm going to do a few things uh, here today with you. I'm going to walk you through a little bit, not too much time, but a, a little bit of my own personal story because I think it will help contextualize my research and, and what I have to share with you about Malcolm X. I then will give you a little bit of uh, Malcolm X's itinerary from 50 years ago beginning today. And then from there, I'm going to walk you through maybe three things that I think Malcolm X uh, was interested in particularly in the last year of his life that I think speaks to this generation of young people. Is that all right? All right. Just a little bit about myself. I, um, I grew up in Queens, New York. I don't know if we have any New Yorkers here, but um, one person, great. Very good, we have coffee later. Um, I grew up in Queens in, in the 1970s and 80s. Um, you know, it was not that atypical, I, my mom, uh, was a single mother. My uh, father had his challenges. He was a very gifted man in a lot of ways, but had his challenges and struggles, um, one of which was addiction, a very powerful uh, heroin addiction. And uh, we were forced to leave my dad when we were about five years old. I was about five years old. And so I grew up with my mom. My dad, his family's from Georgia, African-American family. My mother's family, her grandmother and grandfather had been born in Palermo, Sicily. And so in the 70s and 80s growing up, I, I guess the word is poor, you would call it poor when you're on food stamps like this, you know, I think that's what qualifies you. I grew up poor, but more than anything, I grew up with, with a real sense of loss in terms of my own personal identity. And so I had that kind of struggle growing up in New York. And I remember, uh, I was 13, and my older cousin, David, we were in the Astoria Housing Projects, where I spent a lot of my time hanging out. And I remember sitting in a living room, and my 17-year-old cousin, David, said, man, you don't know anything about history. And I said, what are you talking about? I know about history. He said, all you know about is Martin Luther King. I said, well, I know all these things besides him. He said, have you heard of Malcolm X? I had not heard of Malcolm X. He said, have you heard of Sojourner Truth? I had not heard of Sojourner Truth. Who's Marcus Garvey, he said. I had never heard of Marcus Garvey. I think, you know, I thought I was at 13, I thought I was a fairly smart kid, you know? And uh, I think the, the word is shame. I felt ashamed of my lack of knowledge. And he was kind of belittling me for not knowing any black history, uh, really history period outside of 
the limited confines of what I was educated in in New York at the time. And that day began a, a real search. Uh, I remember going to the Liberation Bookstore in Harlem and maybe spending $100 back in the 1980s when $100 was $100. It's probably about $8 now. But <laughs> I, and buying great books and trying to learn history. And um, you know, Saladin Malik Ambar is not my given name. It's a name I, I chose. I became very much influenced by not only Malcolm X, but Islam. And I began this process of self-actualization and kind of looking for an identity. And I identified very much with the life story of Malcolm X, like many tens of thousands of young people did uh, in the 1970s and 80s. I tell you that because I then began a career once I graduated college. Uh, I began a career first as a high school teacher and then I went into academia, went to graduate school and did all the things you're supposed to do. And I was uh, studying, you know, charismatic figures like Grover Cleveland. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of haters out there. Now, why are you hating on Grover Cleveland? Um, I studied charismatic figures like Rutherford B. Hayes. It's the beard. I had a beard thing going, those late 19th century presidents. And, you know, my work had me focused on governors who became president and the influences they brought into the modern presidency. And that's another story. But I was also teaching at Lehigh University in 2010. And I was teaching uh, in part in the Africana Studies program. And I was teaching a course on black political thought. And we got into that section black nationalism. And then we got into that semi-section Malcolm X. And thinking about, like good professors are supposed to think about, what writings or speeches will help my students to sink their teeth into this topic, I came across the Oxford Address. And I said to myself, well, this is, I, I'm familiar with Malcolm X. I was very familiar with Malcolm X, but I had not really delved into the Oxford Address outside of the small snippets I think I remembered from my youth. The more I dug into it, it became apparent to me that this was not just a good speech, but a great speech. And more importantly than that, a great moment in both the United States, United Kingdom, and in global race relations. It became apparent to me that this was something that could become a book, and so I delved very deeply back into that 13-year-old boy in the Astoria housing projects who was thinking about Malcolm X and taking him seriously. This time I was doing it as an academic. We'll come back to that. But that was my, my sort of uh, re-engagement with Malcolm X as an adult. What was Malcolm X doing 50 years ago today? 50 years ago today, on February 9th, 1965, Malcolm X was trying to get into France. Uh, he was trying to get into Paris. He was, uh, he had spoken in Paris on November 23rd, 1964, at the Salle de la Mutualité, where he was seeking to organize his group, the Organization of Afro-American Unity there. He had already established his organization of Afro-American unity in London. And it became apparent also through my 
research that he was interested in establishing a similar kind of organization in Amsterdam. But he was trying to get into Paris, but the French government this time barred his entry. They would not let him into Paris. And there was some speculation, and remains a good deal of speculation about why the French government barred him from re-entry. Was it that the United States State Department did not want him to speak to the growing black and brown diaspora in Paris who were unsettled? You may recall, maybe you don't know, in 1961, anywhere from several dozen to perhaps 200 Algerians had been drowned in the Seine in a mass roundup of Algerians. There's a book by that title, Paris 1961, about the Algerian atrocities there. Did the State Department not want Malcolm X in Paris because they feared he would stir up new troubles amongst the former colonized people? Or more importantly, would he disparage American foreign policy as he had been doing around Africa, both north and below the southern uh, the, the uh, Sahara Desert, the sub-Saharan um, part of Africa, and in the Middle East, would he continue to quote-unquote disparage American foreign policy? And of course, there were some rumors that the French government had their own reasons for not wanting him to come into Paris that day, namely fear that he would be assassinated on French soil. That was Malcolm X's day on February 9th, 50 years ago. Because he's barred entry, he flies back to London where two days later he delivers a speech at the London School of Economics. He flies back that night, and on Valentine's Day morning, his house is firebombed. Still reeking of smoke, he puts on his suit. He has promised people in Detroit, Michigan, that he will be there to speak to them. And he delivers the speech in Detroit, Michigan on Valentine's Day and he apologizes for his suit smelling of smoke. I apologize, my house has been bombed, he says. That's Valentine's Day for Malcolm X 50 years ago. He flies back that evening and delivers another speech in Harlem. You think you're busy, right? This is not a, you know, this is not a good week to talk about I'm kind of busy to your professors, right? When you look at the life of Malcolm X, right? He gives a speech in Harlem and the next day he speaks before an audience at the Audubon Ballroom in Harlem, an event that in hindsight becomes apparent was a, a run through, a dry run for his assassination. And he delivers that speech. On February 18th at Columbia, he delivers a speech at Columbia University. On the same day, his family is evicted from that home that had been firebombed. That home was the property of the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad, whom he had been the national representative of and spokesperson for for years. Three days after that, Malcolm X steps before the podium on February 21st, 1965, where he is tragically assassinated at that Audubon Ballroom in Harlem at the age of 39. Those were the 12 days of Malcolm X from this day 50 years ago going forward. Dr. King sent a, te a telegram to Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's widow, expressing, quote, his sadness over the shocking and tragic assassination of your husband. While we did not always see eye to eye on methods to solve the race problem, I always had a deep affection 
for Malcolm and felt that he had a great ability to put his finger on the existence and the root of the problem. He was an eloquent spokesperson for his point of view and no one can honestly doubt that Malcolm had a great concern for the problems we face as a race. So our question today is, why should we study Malcolm X and what is his legacy for us today? Don't we know enough about Malcolm X? You've seen the Spike Lee movie maybe? That's three hours of Malcolm, right? Isn't that enough? Three and a half? It's a long movie. A little off the, a little too much Spike Lee in there for me. You know, a lot of zoot suiting going on there. It'd be a little, you know, but, you know, I'm not trying to be, you know, Roger Ebert, but it's a little bit, a little bit. Um, we know or think we know about Malcolm's life, right? Born in Nebraska, Omaha, maybe we know that. He moves to Lansing, Michigan, where his father is murdered under very uh, suspicious circumstances. The family believes that he was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan. In Lansing, he becomes Detroit Red and enters a life of petty crime before moving to Roxbury, Massachusetts, where his petty criminality continues. His hustling lands him in jail, incarcerated for burglary. Malcolm X spends six and a half years incarcerated and is then moved while in prison by the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. Malcolm eschews pork and begins a life of asceticism, eating one meal a day and so forth. He becomes, in 1952, upon his release, the national spokesperson for Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, and begins building mosques and temples across the country, and so forth. In 1963, growing disenchanted with Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X defies an edict against speaking against the assassination of President Kennedy being quoted by a New York Times reporter that the president's murder was a case of chickens coming home to roost. He is silenced for 90 days and is ultimately expelled from the Nation of Islam. In March of 1964, he forms one of two organizations that he will form that year, the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. And then of course he will form the Organization for Afro-American Unity. Malcolm will take his pilgrimage to Mecca in April spent much of the year of 1964 abroad, and of course, uh, by early 1965, he will uh, be assassinated in Harlem, where he spent most of his adult professional life and career. Now, there are many, many oversimplifications to that narrative that I just laid out to you. But we may start there, but it won't be sufficient to answer what does Malcolm X mean to us today. I want to talk to you about three points of a triangle, if you will, that Malcolm X spoke to and that I think are very present today in our lives, not only as Americans, but as global citizens. First and foremost, what was Malcolm X fighting for? What was he ultimately at his core committed to? it's pretty evident that he was committed to the black freedom struggle in America, what is commonly, commonly referred to as the American Civil Rights Movement. At Oxford, Malcolm X had criticized the Brown versus Board of Education decision, not for 
what was decided before the federal government's unwillingness to actually enforce Brown versus Board. He argued that American integration is something that is not achieved in the northern most cosmopolitan cities like New York, Boston, Chicago, and Cleveland. How can we get integration across the country and in the south when the northernmost schools are segregated? And I would submit to you that Malcolm X probably wouldn't have to change a sentence from that Oxford address in criticizing segregation in our northern cities today. But as another dimension of that triangle, he spoke out against police brutality. He argued that for most African Americans, they were living in communities that were tantamount to living in a police state. He made the case at Oxford and elsewhere that a black life, and these are in quotes, is not worth two cents. They take the criminal, he said, and portray him as the victim. And they take the victim and portray him as the criminal. Civil rights bill down the drain, he argued at Oxford, when the federal government allows the murder of innocent people. And it, in Oxford, he was talking about Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, who had been murdered in 1964. You can pass a Civil Rights Act, but where is your humanitarianism, where is your justice, if the federal government, and indeed he pointed out J. Edgar Hoover by name in that address, knows who the killers are, but won't take action against them. I would argue, in the light of Ferguson, Eric Garner, and the many black lives that have been lost at the hands of police without even a trial. Without even a trial, Malcolm X's words at Oxford would not have to be changed one iota. There are other issues that he spoke to at Oxford and elsewhere as part of that black freedom struggle, that point within the triangle, a wealth gap, the gap in political power, the lack of education and educational resources available in the African-American community, and on it goes. The second point of that triangle was the state of world politics that Malcolm X spoke very eloquently to in the last year of his life and indeed before that. As I mentioned, Malcolm X spoke in Paris in November of 1964 and in London, but he also visits Smethwick, England, a town where West Indians, Indians, and Pakistanis are denied the right to buy homes because the city council, the city council of Smethwick, England, just outside of Birmingham, bought up all the properties for the express purpose of not selling it to quote unquote colored people. And at the time, this is at a time in England, frankly, when you could walk to a shoe store and they were selling nigger brown shoes. All non-whites were considered colored. Blacks, South Asians, what have you. Malcolm X spoke to that injustice in Smethwick as part of a global experience of injustice for people of color. He sought to support the burgeoning population of Africans, Asians, West Indians, Muslims and non-Muslims within the diaspora that had now begin, begun to grow 
in the banlieues and suburbs of Paris, but also within Paris and within London and within the larger cities of Europe. Carlos Moore, who was his translator and bodyguard in Paris, said to me, Malcolm wanted to go into Amsterdam because there was a growing African population there as well. As we think about Paris and the recent horrors associated with religious fragmentation, violence, senseless killing, but also the socioeconomic plight of those who've been long locked out simply because their parents were from Algeria or from Tunisia or what have you. As we think about the awful experience of Londoners on the underground during their 9-11 moment, but also think about the ill manner in which people from the black and brown diaspora have been integrated within that society. As we think about decolonization and its effects and its neglects in Europe and in the West, we're reminded of Malcolm X's effort to breach the gap between the haves and have-nots within the Western world. A point of the triangle that he wanted to connect back to the black freedom struggle in the United States. That what was happening in Birmingham, Alabama was just as significant and equally tied to what was happening in Birmingham, England. In 1965, after the Watts Rebellion, Lyndon Johnson as president sends a memo to Harold Wilson, the prime minister of England, saying, you are certainly right when you say that this is only part of a worldwide problem. One can only wonder what the world would have been like had Wilson and Johnson and others taken that problem more seriously at that time. Finally, the third point of a triangle was something that Malcolm X spoke po powerfully to and I think has greater resonance today or certainly as much resonance today as it did 50 years ago. And that's the aesthetic unseen dimension upon which black inferiority and white superiority hinges. The idea of self-loathing, self-hatred experienced all too often internalized by people of color. Malcolm X said, who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin? Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? You know, um, many of you, uh, you probably don't know, but I'd, why would you? You're not into my, hopefully you're not in my social life that much, or personal <laughs> life that much, not yet anyway. But, you know. I, I have, at home, I have seven-year-old triplets, which I was talking to a couple of the fathers out here, which qualifies me for sainthood. And they said, you know, we're gonna work on that for you. Quit, you know, so I'm trying to get that. <laughs> See what one of the fathers can do, sisters maybe. Before my, my kids were born, my, um, my wife was pregnant. With, we were expecting triplets. I have a wonderful niece, beautiful niece, about 16 now. She was much younger then, about nine years old at the time. And she said, oh, Auntie Carmen, that's so exciting. I hope they come out light. 
Who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you to hate the color of your skin? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? You know, in 1781, Thomas Jefferson wrote a very important book, Notes on the State of Virginia. Embedded in there is a large section on the laws in which Jefferson riffs extensively upon black aesthetics. He speaks about black women oh so disparagingly. The monotonous, the monotonous shade of black that colors them, see, because black women don't blush the way white women do. The black woman is to the white man, the black, the white woman is to the black man what the orangutan is, or what the black woman is to the orangutan. You can figure out that SAT analogy on your own. It's hateful is what it is. But black aesthetic life was picked up on by Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America. The psychological dimension of black inferiority Tocqueville wrote about in that famous chapter on the future of the three races in America. Very powerful chapter you should read in Democracy in America. W.E.B. Du Bois in 1903 talked about in the souls of black folk double consciousness. The idea that black people see themselves not as themselves but through the lens of white eyes. That there's this distorted reality. I hope they come out light. Franz Fanon in 1952 wrote in his book Peau Noir Masque Blanc, right? Black skin, white masks about black inferiority and about the psychological urge to become white. It's not so much that Malcolm was ahead of his time, but no personality in the 20th century was able to express the power of white supremacy psychologically on the so-called American Negro as Malcolm did, nor did he undercut that mirage of supremacy on an aesthetic level better than, uh, 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 less than anyone. He was at the fore of recognizing that the socioeconomic and material conditions of black people in the 20th century were indeed problematic, but could not be rendered obsolete if we as a society were going to continue elevating a white aesthetic against all aesthetics. Herman Melville, The Whiteness of the Whale, one of the great American authors to reject the white aesthetic as spiritually gifted, sublime. But there were few Melvilles, and no one attacked white, white superiority on an aesthetic level better than Malcolm X. And only a few minutes I have left before maybe we take questions and talk a little bit. If that's what you'd like to do, I'm happy to do it. I thought I'd close with the last lines of Malcolm X's address from Oxford, because this is really about young people and the generation you inhabit today. And so I'll leave you with Malcolm X's words from what I consider to be his most comprehensive uh, and complete address near the end of his life. I read once passingly, he said, about a man named Shakespeare. I only read about him passingly, but I remember one thing he wrote that kind of moved me. He put it in the mouth of Hamlet, I think, 
to be or not to be. He was in doubt about something. Whether it was nobler in the mind of man to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, moderation, or to take up arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them. And I go for that. If you take up arms, you'll end it. But if you sit around and wait for the one who is in power to make up his mind that he should end it, you'll be waiting a long time. And in my opinion, the young generation of whites, blacks, browns, whatever else there is, you're living at a time of extremism, a time of revolution, and now there has to be a change. People in power have misused it, and now there has to be a change. And a better world has to be built. And the only way it's going to be built is with extreme methods. And I, for one, will join in with anyone. I don't care what color you are, as long as you want to change the miserable condition that exists upon this earth. Thank you. I hope that's enough uh, flavor for you if you have questions or comments uh, about what I said or anything about Malcolm X that I might be able to share with you from my perspective and research, I'm happy to do it. So I forgive you all from 1985. You weren't, many of you weren't alive when that horrible event happened, so you don't have, it's not your fault. You can now feel free to engage if that's what you want to do. Yes, sir. Dr. Anbar, thank you for coming today. I appreciate your talk and uh, learned much from it, that's for sure. Uh, I just want to go back to uh, what you mentioned at the beginning uh, with Malcolm X and criticizing American foreign policy. And I know that there were several speeches during 1964, especially late 1964, uh, in which uh, Malcolm X referred to the growing involvement in Vietnam. I just wanted to know if your research, uh, especially in recent years, um, sheds any light on whether or not the State Department took any action against him because of that? I think the, the short answer to that is yes. So Malcolm X had been speaking about American foreign policy in Vietnam really before the war really took off, right? Um, there's a book by Mary L. Dudziak called Cold War, uh, Cold War Civil Rights in which she talks about Malcolm X's trips to Africa. There's another book by a professor named Al Tillery, Jr., who, uh, and I think it's Homeland and something or other, in which he talks about black, farm, uh, black uh, civil rights in the context of US foreign policy. It's pretty clear that what happened was that Malcolm would travel to Africa. He'd go to Ghana, we know this, he'd go to Ghana, give a talk, he hung out with Maya Angelou there, but he also he was organizing, uh, hung out with Shirley Du Bois, the widow of W.E.B. Du Bois. He'd, go, he'd leave Ghana and the U.S. State Department would send, oh, I don't know, James Farmer or Roy Wilkins or someone from a mainstream civil rights organization in after him to sort of speak against what Malcolm had said. Um, the British government, as well as the American government, were well aware of what he was saying abroad. Malcolm was saying, uh, stuff not only anti-U.S. Vietnam War, but he was making pro-China statements. He had said he was asked in Paris 
by Melvin Van Peoples, which if you're under 40, you won't know anything about who that is. Um, but he was asked in an interview in Paris by Van Peoples, what was the most significant event in 1964? Van Peoples was thinking he was going to hear, well, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, uh, Lyndon Johnson's election, yay for liberals over Goldwater. Malcolm X said, well, that's easy. The most significant event in 1964 was the detonation of the atomic bomb by China. Now, that's a, you know, borderline crazy thing to say, right? Well, if you follow the logic of Malcolm X, it was China's effort to thwart possible colonial slash imperial endeavors on its homeland, that we now had a state, a non-white state, a formerly weakened state, who had been carved up in the 19th century. Remember that Boxer Rebellion, right? China now was able within several generations to position itself to finally be able to say, we have a weapon, a deterrent to that kind of aggression. That was the global dimension of American foreign policy. Now, the British government hated that and American foreign, the American government hated that kind of language. And they wrote about Malcolm X's comments. I'm doing something awful up in here. Uh, wrote about Malcolm X's comments uh, on China and Vietnam. So yes, the answer is yes. There's good evidence that the State Department was aware and deeply troubled by what Malcolm X was saying abroad. <coughs> yes, sir. Um, <coughs> you mentioned uh, France Fanon. And I wonder if um, Malcolm X, you said also that his black nationalism changes towards the end of his life. I wonder if there's a corollary there with France Fanon's sort of national consciousness. Let me take that. Thank you. Was there a corollary or? Yeah, is there similarities between Malcolm X's, whatever you see as his sort of, his change in stance towards black nationalism, towards some other maybe Afro-nationalism or something? Yeah, I wouldn't, um, I think it's very difficult and probably wrong to put Malcolm X in a particular ideological camp at any point in his life other than uh, you know, pro-black and or a Muslim. I think those were, uh, he was committed to those, but to say he was ultimately black nationalist, ultimately socialist, ultimately, right, um, is, is too, um, too committed. But I do agree that like Fanon, he was looking at, you know, uh, more socialist orientation towards resolving, you know, the black race problem in America, if you will, the race problem in America, I should say. Uh, but like Fanon, I think his, one of his great gifts was psychological, that he understood that the underpinnings of white supremacy were not simply rooted in the material, they were rooted in how people internalize themselves um, psychologically, psychically. And I think, you know, there are, there are only a handful of writings by Americans that really get at that kind of, um, and I'm talking going back to the family, that really get at the psychological dimension of race, as well as Kanan got at it, and certainly as well as Malcolm X got at it. And I do think that they were kind of, there's a sort of in, uh, intellectual partnership, so to speak, between the two. Um, and I touched on that briefly in the book, but I think it's really, um, it's really insightful to look at Fanon alongside of Malcolm X, to be sure. Other questions? Yes? You raised so many fascinating points, but um, um, in terms of the international dimension, um, I think um, Mary Duzak is yet. One of her um, contentions is that um, part of the reason uh, the United States government kind of capitulated or gave in or 
did what they did around civil rights was because it was the Cold War and the rest of the world was looking at what was happening to black people in this, in this country and thinking, how could you talk about democracy? You're, you know, defeating people in the streets, you're doing all kinds of really horrible things. And that actually may have had an impact on, um, you know, what the U.S. government did. And so it's really kind of interesting that Malcolm um, X was the one who kind of said, this look at the international dimension, how that can really affect what we're trying to do here is kind of the civil rights struggle itself. I mean, Dr. King did kind of in the end say something, but they were kind of, you know, you don't want to look outside. And, and I wonder today whether that's kind of true also, because it doesn't seem like we're doing as much internationally as we do in the rest of the world. It's just kind of, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. But today, you know, when we are so connected to the rest of the world, it doesn't feel like we're as connected to the rest of the world in terms of our struggle. You know, part of the problem is that, you know, foreign policy has always been something that the American people haven't paid much attention to. That's number one, right? And it's increasingly the case in a, in a world where we're so divided in terms of social media and all of these variations in terms of where we are, varieties of ways we get our information. Um, so foreign policy is even more neglected now than, than it was at a time where at least you were kind of compelled on the nightly news to get some information, whether it's about Vietnam or Africa or wherever, you got something maybe. Whereas today you barely get, you know, you're going to get more about Beyonce on Channel 4. Y'all got Channel 4 now? Or wherever, you know, you're going to get more on, you know, last night's Grammys than you're going to get on what's going on in Nigeria, what's going on in where have you, what have you, right? Um, you know, Malcolm was certainly not the first person, right? Um, you know, Frederick Douglass, heck, he spoke in London, right? I mean, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois was that organizing internationally. But what Malcolm recognized with that was that at that stage of the civil rights movement, that what was needed was a broader uh, canvas, right? There's a, a political scientist named E.E. E. Schatzneider, and I think I just got a lot of points from the gods of political science by mentioning his name. E.E. E. Schatzneider, wrote about expanding the sphere of combat, so to speak, right, a as a political tool. Malcolm X understood that you could not get justice in America with American courts and American institution mm -hmm. institutions. It had to be taken to a world court. It had to be expanded. So when he goes to Oxford, one of the major reasons he accepts is, yeah, he's in fact, yeah, Oxford is nice, wonderful place to debate. He probably debated an Oxford and Cambridge team while he was in prison, actually, because uh, he debated while he was in prison. But what was really important to him was that he had the forum that the BBC provided. As edited and watered down as they tried to make his speech, he had more time there in an unadulterated fashion to speak to the world than he had ever in America. And so that global presence was critical to him. And perhaps it's part of why France bought him, right? We can go on and, and talk more about this, but I think that that's, yes, you, I think you're right about that connection, for sure. Yes, sir. From uh, my understanding and your great points, uh, would you say that Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King uh, was one a villain and one a hero? Because being here at Villanova University, every, uh, every time we mention Black History Month, I hear about Dr. King and his dream and what he visioned for non-colors and colors, but yet most of the points you hit on about uh, Malcolm X and police brutality 
is most of what we're seeing today, especially in the media. And I just don't understand that why we're not learning more about him and our institution, but also in public and private high schools and middle schools and elementary schools. Because of what you're saying, especially about what he's talking about with justice and calling out Hoover, those are the main situations that we should fix first before trying to reach a dream. You know, when I was at a, I was at a talk at Lehigh University, uh, where I teach, this was about two years ago, and um, a, a famous, or actually nobody's famous in academia unless you're Cornell West is a <laughs> I won't say famous, uh, a highly respected, that's better. Highly respected. Nobody reads our books, but we're highly respected. <laughs> Not a lot of respect. Nobody reads but highly respected. So it was a highly respected um, professor of political thought, of American political thought, who came to Lehigh University, and he began a sentence this way in response to my question to him. He said, well, if Malcolm X had been smart, he would have done such and so. <laughs> from a neighboring institution. Not here, nobody from Villanova would ever say that, but this was a neighboring institution somewhere in the greater Philadelphia area. Y'all figure that out, right? Um, and what struck me was that how uh, unseriously and how dismissive we are of Malcolm X as a political figure and as a political thinker. So it goes from, you know, so from the lowest realm to the classroom to the people who are writing about political thought across the board. He's not taking him seriously, or if he's taken seriously, he's taken in this one-dimensional way as a scary figure, someone who's not worthy of study. And so I agree with the premise that Malcolm X is not um, delved into nearly enough, not made relevant to your generation in ways that I think uh, are very important. Um, some of that is because he doesn't fit neatly and cleanly into a kind of American narrative of progressive social justice. We started out here, and look at where we are now, Mom. This is where we are. Malcolm X, his language, his, his writings, his speeches are an ongoing critique of the present. You can't pick up uh, 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 the autobiography of Malcolm X or go onto YouTube and listen to you know, the message to the grassroots or the Oxford Union Address or Ballad of the Bullet and not hear a condemnation of where we are right now. I would submit that the same is, is very much true for Dr. King, except that we kind of have a one-dimensional, acceptable view of King that is taught, where the radical King is kind of rendered aside, and we ain't gonna talk about anything after 67, damn it, doesn't exist, right? We're not gonna, you know, 67, let's just, 66, we're gonna cut it off right there, when he's loving everybody and not talking about anything else, right? That's sort of a one-dimensional view of Dr. King. And so it's incumbent upon us, first and foremost, I take the burden as a scholar to take Malcolm X seriously. Same way I would Alexis de Tocqueville, the same way I would Herman Melville, the same way I would, you name it. But then we have to take him seriously as in our institutions and on your own. You know, there's a reason why I had to spend $100 as a 13-year-old, 14-year-old deliberation bookstore in Harlem, because I wasn't getting that at, you know, I guess, uh, you know, PS 187 in Queens. Or uh, I wasn't getting that at, you know, John Barron High School. I had to get it on my own. So it's incumbent upon us to do the nourishing intellectual work wherever we are. And, you know, if you won't be fed, you still have a responsibility to be fed, to eat. 
If institutions won't feed you, you demand that the curriculum changes, you know? Encourage, encourage yourself and your institution to think out the box. I'm having a great deal of fun right now with a very small group of students. I'm teaching a course on Melville, Malcolm, and Morrison. Tony Morrison, Malcolm X, and Henry Melville. Critiquing the American dream. That course did not exist a year ago. I'm not saying that to brag on me. I'm saying that I had to challenge myself to find ways to get at some things that I think need to be said and talked about and researched in the academy. Y'all wish that course was ahead, don't you? Oh, yeah. that. No, y'all wouldn't read Herman Melville. Y'all wouldn't read it. You wouldn't read Bill Hall. That's too to see. But I'll tell you something. Whenever they tell you, oh, that Moby Dick is too long, that's the society's way, that's the institution's way of telling you, you're too dumb for this. When you go around thinking, it's like Malcolm X, oh, he's too radical. Or Herman Melville, he's too hard. You can't read Benito Sereno. You can't read Billy Boy. You can't read Moby Dick. That's too long. All those wailing chapters, but they're only turning you away from the most radical white author in American political history. And so you think Bobby Dick's too long, and you can't deal with the whiteness of the wear, but you'll read you some little something something about that big and call yourself educated. Mm. You gotta challenge yourself, you gotta challenge your institution. The minute they tell you he's too radical, the minute they tell you it's too long, you should say, why aren't I reading it? You know Malcolm X's favorite book in prison was Milton's Paradise Lost? Mm. You know his number his favorite uh, philosopher was Hegel? Absolutely. So, you know, master slave dialect. You know, you think about it, it makes perfect sense. My point is that if Malcolm X were a Villanova today, he wouldn't be out of that library. You'd have to pull him out. Y'all have all access to all of this? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go and dig. Right? can't say it any plainer than that. That's, that's really the challenge we have, to push ourselves. And when the institution doesn't meet our needs, we fight to have it meet our needs, but we still have to be fair. We still have to push ourselves to go beyond and not be told that it's too radical, it's too long, it's too boring, you can't do it. You do it. I don't care if there's three students in there, I'm going to teach that course. And maybe those three will change the world. Yes, ma'am. Um, just going off that, where do you, can you give us some suggestions on the students who would like to learn a lot more about Malcolm X and more of, of what he was doing internationally? I can't. I will try not to be self-serving here and tell you to read my book. Um, <laughs> you should read my book. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of what books that focus specific, first of all, you should read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Let's start. You should read that. Mm -hmm. Then you should read Manning Marable's big, controversial, but also otherwise excellent book, um, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention. There's a Canadian scholar, just wrote a very fascinating book, a guy by the name of Graham Abernethy wrote a book called The Iconography of Malcolm X, very powerful book. It's got interesting things in there um, about Malcolm X as an icon, as an image. Um, I think you've got to read Malcolm's speeches. I think you've got to read them themselves and, and, and listen to them. Power, he was a great orator, obviously, so the power is in the speeches. Those are good. You know, Manny Marable's book will take a good five months right there, so you, know, you, ain't going, you are not going anywhere to <laughs> pick up that book. So, but uh, there are lots of people doing excellent work on Malcolm X. You know, um, start with the autobiography, go to Manny Marable, uh, go to the speeches, go to what's available online, hear them for yourself. It's a, you know, Millions of people, not just African Americans, not just black males or black women, 
the whites, everybody, I don't care who you are, you pick up the autobiography of Malcolm X. When you get exposed to the life story of Malcolm X, mm -hmm. it's life-changing in many ways. It really is. Um, and there are lots of people who have said that that book has sort of changed their life one way or the other. It's awakening them to like a slap in the face. Right? So go there. Start there. Thank you. Can I just add, too, that the, um, the website, www.brothermalcolm.net, yes. is an incredible resource for um, uh, recordings of his speeches. YouTube has a lot of his speeches on there that is uh, excellent. By the way, as someone who is at this institution and not your graduate, you're almost winning basketball Jesuit University. This is an Augustinian as opposed to Jesuit. I see. But I would say that Malcolm X is quintessentially Augustinian mm. and that Augustine's mm. confections can be read, oh, you yeah. know, in and through his autobiography. It's absolutely amazing. He is so undervalued, I think, as a consummate American. Graham Abernathy in that book, The Iconography of Malcolm X, talks about Malcolm as icon functioning as a Christ-like icon, and he refers the autobiography to the Confessions of St. Augustine as a kind of model mm -hmm. of Malcolm's transformation. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the Abernathy books is good, and yes. Any others? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm not a political scientist, and I'm just going to be in your ballpark either, but it made me think when you were talking about the exposure, the, you know, going to the international uh, world level to kind of uh, make Americans embarrassed of bad things happening and do something good as a response. Uh, just, I don't know, I don't know if anyone in the room knows whether our reluctance to participate in the international criminal court is related to primarily slavery or if there's, I mean, I know there's so many things that we could be, uh, that the leaders could be avoiding uh, for, but I was just wondering if that's one the, of the Yeah, I think the long-standing uh, opposition has been uh, the issue of genocide. We've not signed on to the genocide convention, the, uh, the prospect that we could be tried or American side, with regard to Native Americans, to be sure. Thank yes. Great one. Yeah, one more question, sir? Yeah, I, I was just going to add Cohen's book as well. Oh, yeah, James, James Cohen. Martin Martin's an yes. excellent book. Uh, the question I wanted to ask you was, how do you think the American media is going to commemorate this anniversary? <laughs> commemorate is too strong a word, but I think they will, they will deal with it. And what I mean by deal with it is uh, there will be uh, some snippets on cable. There you go. No Time magazine cover. Not likely. You know, Malcolm as an icon, as an image, still sells. You know, I, um, I talk about it in my book. There were some uh, glasses sold by Esquire, <laughs> faux X glasses that were selling at one point just a few years ago for $900. You know, people like the image and uh, sort of, you know, the aesthetic of Malcolm X and, uh, you know, like the Che Guevara t-shirt, right? Um, so I think it's possible, you know, you could, you might see, a, you know, a cover like that, um, but it, it'll probably be, you know, a, a kind of um, schlock job if I can employ that, you know, expression. It won't be very deep or meaningful, unfortunately. I will say uh, the Journal of Africana Religions this month, in the month of January, actually, 
has out, this latest edition has out a number of articles. I mean, I have an article there, but there's some wonderful articles commemorating the 50th anniversary of Malcolm X from different perspectives, different points of view. And I don't know if Villanova has access, I know you have access to it, I don't know if you get that journal, but you should look, look for that journal and take a look at all the, the articles that are out. Lehigh welcomes you and invites you to our um, three-day conference this month from the 17th to the 19th uh, to commemorate the life of Malcolm X on our College of Arts and Sciences website. There is um, you know, a, a way to register to come. Uh, and there are a number of speakers uh, from Tariq Ali, uh, who's making it from London, to people from Paris, to Michael Eric Dyson, and others. It's going to be a, a phenomenal three days. You can make just a slice of it. We invite you and welcome you uh, at Lehigh to um, have that experience with us. One more? Yes, sir. Um, I'm from Grenada in the Caribbean. And where we grew up, like, the nation is predominantly, like, Afro-Caribbean, but the way we were raised, like, it was almost, I guess you could say, a price of sorts to be dark. And by going through school, like, we had rules, like, keep your hair as short as possible. I didn't even know my hair was clipped until after I got out of school. But we had, like, some Indian students come in, and the rule never applied to them. They grew it out as long as they wanted. But as soon as the rest of us, our hair got long, then we'd get told by the principal, just, like, grow that to hair. And uh, I guess, like, the attitude to books and so on has always been, like, well, most Grenadians, they don't read much at all. Like, I was kind of an exception because I come from a semi-white family. And uh, I guess my question really is, like, what's keeping people from, what's keeping black people in particular from empowering themselves the way Malcolm X did? Like, what in society or what in people keeps them from aspiring to be the best they can be. Thank you for your question. Um, first, let me say I'm not sure you're aware that Malcolm X's mother is from Grenada, right? Okay. Um, you know, the problem is, I think, as I try to lay out twofold primarily, let's not, you know, imagine away real socioeconomic conditions that what we would call structural inequalities that serve as a real impediment, certainly to black uplift, but as we're learning more and more, lower middle class whites are no more likely today to move from the lower middle class to the middle class or upper middle class or wealth than they were uh, 10, 15 years ago. And certainly, in fact, they have gone backwards in their ability for social upward mobility because of structural inequalities and the changing economy and our rejection of the power of labor and the dignity of labor and so forth. I was talking with Ira Katznelson, very famous political scientist, historian at Columbia University. He said when he was 22 years old in New York, he rode a cab. And he had, it was, and the cabs were unionized and people had health care, driving taxis. He said, I wasn't gonna do it for the rest of my life, but there were guys, that's how they lived, they're in their living and they had health care, right? You know, you get a, 22-year-old guy today driving a cab in some big city, and they don't have a shot, regardless of what color they are. But black people, and people of color in particular in this country and around the world, certainly have structural inequalities that we have to deal with, that are very real. And for every Malcolm X, there are hundreds of thousands, literally, of brilliant minds that never see the light of day. It's a miracle that Malcolm X was produced, right? But then we have the psychological dimension, which is another sort of cruel 
you know, irony of fate, that because you don't know what you don't know, right? And you don't, uh, you, you know, your spirit almost has to be activated against the world you're in. It's like a matrix, right? It's a false world in which what is up is down and what is down is up, right? And so you got to first learn that not only to love yourself, but to see yourself in history. When I went to Georgetown as an undergrad, and I, God bless the Jesuits, I could not read Hegel with a straight face because I didn't see myself in Hegel. Had I known Malcolm X loved Hegel, I would have had a shot. But nobody told me that. See what I'm saying? I had no interest in Herman Melville because I thought he was just another white author. No one told me that he was one of the great, you know, theorists about race in American history, about the underclass, about the sexually disenfranchised. But I had to be alerted to that. And so, you know, what we know today is true then that we've all got to expand our circle of influence. We've all got to get out of our little comfort zones because the further we expand our network, our circle of influence, beyond our own little rigid world, the more opportunities we're going to have to be woken up. The greater opportunities we're going to have to no longer be what Ralph Ellison referred to in Invisible Man as sleepwalkers. We have the opportunity, but if we're in our own little clustered world, we're not going to be challenged. We're not so... This Black History Month and all the events, not just Black History Month, all the events that have some tinge of, you know, uh, speaking to you as a human being here, while you're building over, you need to go to those. You need to grasp a variety of books, not just from the same shelves, and expose yourself to as wide a, a thought current as possible while you can, before you have triplets. I'm not trying to put it on you. Before you have triplets, that's the time to really expose yourself to a wide thought current because you'll find yourself there. You will find yourself in those experiences. So we have to work on the two dimensions. The material, let's not pretend that black people don't still live in projects or that people in South Africa after Mandela's death still don't live in shanty towns. Material conditions are real. Black unemployment is still twice as high as white unemployment in this country. Still. Right? Can you imagine if white unemployment was always 11, 15, 20 percent? There'd be a revolution in this country. It'd be an entire right? So the material conditions are real. But then you have another set of unseen conditions. I hope they turn out light. That's another war we have to wage over and over again on a daily basis. When you look in the mirror and you see your beautiful hair, brother, accept that. Accept who you are. You're beautiful. All right? Amen.